Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that inspires you to build your family culture around books. Hello, hello, Sarah McKenzie here. Thanks for tuning in. You've got episode 53 of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. To say I'm excited about today's interview is the understatement of the century. (laughs) I am a mega fan of today's guest. You'll figure out why in short order. It's a great show today. I'm so excited to share it with you. First, I have a super important announcement to make. We are opening enrollment at Read Aloud Revival membership on November 1st, 2016. So many of you have been waiting for us to complete our website update so that we could reopen membership. And I'm so happy to tell you it's finally happening. (laughs) This is the important part. You'll have just 10 days to sign up because we are closing registration on November 10th, 2016, and then won't open again until 2017. So make sure you head to rarmembership.com between November 1st and November 10th, 2016 to get in. Look, it's hard to connect with our kids in our busy, noisy daily lives, right? But Reading Aloud gives us a chance to be fully present. At the Read Aloud Revival membership, we have a program that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through stories. Our featured authors who your kids can meet in the coming year include Tommy DePaola, Patricia Polacco, Andrew Peterson, John Klassen, Shannon Hale, Jane Yolen, and many others. It's just a crazy, wonderful lineup. In membership, you also get access to all of our master classes and whole family workshops, as well as member-only resources and more. For all the details on membership, head to rarmembership.com. We'll have registration open probably around late morning Pacific time on November 1st, 2016. Um, and remember, you need to register between November 1st and November 10th, or you'll have to wait until 2017 to get in. So you don't want to delay. Now, if you're listening to this episode after November 10th, 2016, um, don't fret. Just go to rarmembership.com and throw your email into the page there because the people who are on that list get the very first word when we open up registration and we do that several times a year. Okay, let's chat with our honored guest today, Linda Sue Park. Today's guest shares something in common with many of us. Her favorite thing to do as a child was to read, but she also loved to write. In fact, her first poem was published when she was just nine years old. A few years later, Linda Sue Park is the author of more than 20 books, including some of my favorite novels and picture books. In 1999, she published her first book, Seesaw Girl, 
And since then, she has published several others, including Newbery Award-winning book, A Single Shard, that won the Newbery in 2002. It's an incredibly beautiful, powerful story. Easily one of my favorites. And she also wrote a new favorite of mine, which is A Long Walk to Water, which moved me in such a deep and profound way. She believes that reading makes us better writers and that through reading, we can change the world. So today, she's here to talk with us about just that. Linda Sue, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, before we launch into our conversation, do you want to tell us just a little bit about your family and your work? Uh, sure. I am. I live in Rochester, New York, which for non-East Coasters is not near the famous New York City. It's all the way on the other side of the state. <laughs> yeah, we all think New York is just the city, right? <laughs> right, right. But I actually grew up in the Chicago area, so I'm a transplanted Midwesterner. I'm married and I have two grown children and I have two grandchildren who are, of course, the most beautiful, smartest, cleverest, wonderful (laughs) babies in the whole world. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you gave this beautiful, beautiful TED Talk uh, where you talk. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard Linda Sue's TED Talk, you're going to want to watch that. It's really moving. And in that TED Talk, you talk about your father, a Korean immigrant, and how astounded he was by the public library system in America. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, when you think about it, as I say in the TED Talk, a public library is a really strange (laughs) idea. You walk in, you get yourself an armful of books, and you walk out without paying a cent. And librarians say, just bring them back when you're done. (laughs) You cannot do that with anything else. I think there's a few toy libraries now, but you can't do it with clothes or with, you know, with when there was videos back when you had to pay for them. You know, it's an astounding idea. And my father especially just thought it was the most amazing thing about this country. And, of course, he raised us all as library, faithful library patrons. And I am still at my local library easily twice a week and sometimes more. Oh, that's so great. So tell me, how how did that shape or influence your writing, do you think, as you were growing up? Oh, I'm definitely a writer because I was a reader. There's absolutely no other reason. Mm. I mean, I think people have a lot of different reasons for writing. And the reason that I am a writer is because I read so much when I was young. So I just basically read my way through the whole Park Forest Public Library in Park Forest, Illinois. And of course, I was fortunate that I lived during, I grew up in my school years during an era when most schools had a library as well. So that meant that even for me, who was growing up in a family that didn't have a lot of money at the time, I could read as many books as I wanted. And, you know, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. That really is an amazing thing. I mean, the public library makes it so that most people, not everybody, because I know there are still many communities that do not have access to libraries, Mm -hmm. but most of us can become readers, especially if there is a caring adult in our life who will teach us about the library. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things you said in your TED Talk that I thought was so moving was about how books give us practice in dealing with life's unfairness. Can you talk about how books do that? Well, I think that books for young people are an incredible gift because they're a safe place to practice at life. And what I say is that life is very complicated and bewildering at times, and all of us need practice at it. So how do you do that? How do you go about practicing at life? You see it In very young children a lot, they play, they do make-believe, they do pretend, they're practicing. And as we get older, that becomes sort of less acceptable or something, you know, that's a less a usual part of our lives. But we can all still practice by reading stories in books. Probably the easiest example is that for young people or children who have never lost a loved one, 
Mm-hmm. You know, how does that feel? Mm-hmm. Well, you read a story, whether it's a story about a beloved dog that dies. Lois Lowry talks about how the yearling affected her, so it might be a pet or it might be a person. Bridge to Terabithia by Kathleen Patterson. And you feel such incredible sadness when a character in a book that you've come to know and love meets with tragedy. Mm-hmm. And that's preparing our hearts for when it happens to us in real life. Not just that, you know, this sadness is something that I have experienced or I practiced before, but also that whoever is affected by the tragedy in the book usually goes on. You know, this is awful. It's terrible. I feel terrible right now, but I will go on. You know, I can go on. So it gives us basically a model for overcoming. Right, right. For both facing and dealing, you know, and, and overcoming. So that's just one of about, you know, a million examples of where it's not going to be a carbon copy of your own life in the circumstances or the details, but the emotional resonance in a very good book is going to be true and universal. Well, I also like how reading books is sharing a really beautiful story. Okay, I'm thinking of a single shard, and I'm thinking how about in the story, Tree Ear has his bowl of food that the potter's wife gives him every day for lunch, right? Right. And he only eats half of it because he wants, once he, well, the first day he eats the entire bowl and he realizes when he goes back under the bridge with Crane Man that he didn't save any for his beloved friend who would not have done that. He would have, you know, of course Crane Man would have saved him food. And so he has kind of this shameful moment where he realizes what he's done. And then going forward, he always saves half of his meal, even though he knows he could eat the whole, oh, I'm skipping around so much because I love this book so much. <laughs> I don't want to give away too much, actually, because some of our listeners may have not read the book yet. But when you read that book, read aloud revivalers, (laughs) think to yourself of what this does to us. I know in myself, when I was reading this book, I'm asking myself, would I have done that? And would would I eat the entire bowl every single day once I knew it was going to be filled up again? You know, I don't know. It's just it inspires this kind of heroic virtue, I think, in the reader where we have to kind of ask ourselves questions. What am I going to do when I face something? Even if it's not the same, I'm not going to face that particular situation. But when I'm facing a situation where I have to be generous and kind and thoughtful and selfless, will I be able to do it like tree year? Right. I mean, what would I do? You know, what, what if this were me? I mean, that's huge because that's what leads to the creation of empathy and recognizing the humanity and other people, especially those who may not be exactly like us. Right, exactly. Okay, well, I would like to shift gears just a little bit because one of the things that's really on my heart right now is diversity in children's literature and how important it is for us to read books, for all of us to read books about people who don't look like us, and then for our kids to be able to see themselves in the characters they're reading. And so, for example... I read an article not too long ago. I think it was on Slate. I'll find it and put it in the show notes for all of you who are listening, where they were talking about it's really important for there not just to be diverse books, but for there to be diverse books where kids are doing ordinary things. So if the only time that an African-American child sees himself in a book is in a book about civil rights or slavery or some historical how come that there aren't stories about this child just living normal every day, just like all the other books? So of course, my team and I gather around, we're like, no, this is, we need to come up with a list of books that have diverse characters who are living ordinary days. And it was really hard to do. And so we did come up with a list. I don't have it published when we're recording this, but I will by the time it's airing. So if you're listening to this podcast, you can go to the show notes. We'll have a link to the list we've assembled 
of diverse books that kind of just are ordinary day kind of books. Not ordinary day like there's no problem, but like ordinary in that this isn't a book about that particular. So where, for example, ethnicity is identity and not issue. So anyway, this has been on my heart a lot. I've been thinking about it constantly. And when I was perusing your site, I know that that's something that you feel really passionate about is that we need diverse books. And I love that you have highlighted the Reading Without Walls Challenge, which we'll also link to, which helps, you know, encourages kids to read a book about a character who doesn't look like them or live like them. But just talk to me a little bit about what's on your heart when it comes to diversity in children's books. Well, I think that that there is a natural or I don't know what the word might be natural, but that there is an evolution or a process, or a progress, and it is not a straight line, of course, and it sometimes acts like a pendulum, or a yo-yo, or whatever. It's not a beautiful bell curve, or anything like that, but so that we initially, when we got books, and I'm going to talk in this case about books about ethnicity and race, we began with issue books, you know, and for many people feel that we should be moving on, and there are many authors and publishers who have And somehow the needle gets a little stuck. Oh, we need more books about, you know, ordinary kids with ordinary. And I hear you when you say that they're hard to find. And yet they exist out there and they're not somehow getting the kind of love or airtime or space in our minds and imaginations and on our lists and and on the internet that they ought to be getting if this is truly a goal. So for example, I'm thinking of, and, and many of these books have gotten a lot of praise and so forth. And so that it's like, I'm getting a little bit tangled up here, but it's like when people used to say, or still do say, oh, the Newbery Medal never goes to a funny book. Well, actually, yes, it does. But this becomes a truism that's stuck in people's heads. Okay. Now, the Newbery doesn't often go to a silly book, uh-huh. which is what I think people might mean. But if you look over the list of the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of Newberries, lots of them have humor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not silly. They're not slapstick. But they're funny. Right. You know, so, all right. So, for example, I'm thinking of Karen English's book, of Sandy Fraser's books. Even some of Christopher Paul Curtis's books mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are about characters of color where their race is not the issue. You know, uh, Lisa Yee, of course, writes about Asian Americans where mm-hmm. the their Asianness is definitely part of their lives and part of their identity, but it's not their story. Right. You know? So they do exist. And if people start looking, I think they'll find they'll be surprised that they can find more than they think are out there. But it's a good, it's a great question you're asking. You know, why are these books not better known? You know, why aren't they, if this, if this is what we're saying we want, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, why aren't, why isn't there more press for them? So I'm very delighted to hear that you are making that list. Yes, we are. We're assembling a list. And one of the things that I've just, that just really is important to me is I know that we have people in our Read Aloud Revival community who say, you know, my kids are, what I noticed about the book list that I originally assembled for our community is they said, you know, my kids don't see themselves on any of these pages. And I was astonished at my own lack mm-hmm. of awareness when I put together that book list that I made them all books that look like my children. And I thought, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize that about myself. And I told my community director, wow, I am having a moment of shame here because I was kind of hanging my head realizing that's what we've done inadvertently. I'm, you know, so anyway, I think awareness, of course, is the first step. And then we, we can take small steps to change. And I will make sure I include a link to that Reading Without Walls challenge and to we need diversebooks.org so that people can find more resources. Wonderful. Well. And another, another really wonderful hashtag is own voices. Okay. Yep. And so, and my blog, 
which highlights the Reading Without Walls Challenge, as uh-huh. has a couple more resources that I really like. So that's a great thing. And yes, awareness is definitely, it's something that I think about, not just with, I mean, obviously for parents, but as well for teachers. You know, take a look at the books that you've been reading aloud to your classroom for maybe many years in a row, and they're probably wonderful, but how about changing it up a little? Yeah. You know, how about looking for an equally wonderful book that might have kids who look a little different in it, and not just if it's because you have kids that look like that in your classroom. Obviously, that's the mirrors thing. You want them to see each other and to feel that they are important enough to be in books. But even if your classroom is all white or mostly white, you know, that's where it becomes windows and doors. Right. Um, They need to see characters of color in books so they know the same thing, that people of color are important enough to be in books. Exactly. I have had wonderful and well-meaning teachers and librarians tell me, Oh, I'd love to order more of your books from my library, but I don't have any Asians in my school. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. yeah. And you wanted to say, well, actually, that's why you do need more. That's of why you need books. to order a whole bunch. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about one of your books. Let's talk about A Long Walk to Water. And maybe could you just give us a little over for those of us, for those of our listeners who haven't yet had the pleasure of reading this book, which hopefully after this podcast, everyone will run out to get it. Um, but could you give us a little maybe summary of it and then we can talk a little bit about some of the ways you've tackled hard issues in the book? Sure. That book was what I call a gift book because I certainly never had any intention of writing a novel set in Sudan and South Sudan. It happened actually through my husband who was a journalist for many, many years and interviewed a young man back in the early 2000s who was doing simply amazing things. And he came home and told me about it. And I sort of, we became friends. And I was thinking about him for a long, long time before I finally had one of those smack on the head moments, like, duh, you know, (laughs) uh, I, I I want as many people to know about his story as possible. And I especially want young people to know about his story because it's so amazing and incredible and inspiring. And why don't I just write a book about him? I did have to get over the hump that I have not written about a place that I've never been to, and it is normally a deal breaker for me. But I decided to go against that just this one time, and I do mean just this one time, um, (laughs) because his story was so extraordinary and because I had access to both him and my husband. My husband, at the time that I originally wrote the book, had been to Sudan with Salva once and has since been back. And of course, Salva now lives there, and I had access to him whenever I needed it. So with those two primary sources, mm-hmm. as were, I decided to go ahead and write the book. You know, since then, people have asked me, are you going to write about this topic or that topic? And it just has to have that, as with any story, it has to have that very personal connection that just you feel like I cannot not write this story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was floored. I was floored. My husband walked, I was making dinner right after I finished reading it. And I was reading it to myself because I was going to read it aloud to my kids, but I wanted to preview it first just to find out like if I needed to gather more information at all before I read it to my kids. And I read your book. I finished it and I'm making dinner and my husband walks into the kitchen and he's, I'm not usually an overly quiet person. (laughs) And he said, why are you so quiet? And I Uh, I just pointed to the book. I'm like, you just need to read it. And he said, well, just tell me what it's about. I'm like, no, no, (laughs) you just need to read it. It was so, it was so moving to me. So the story of these lost boys of Sudan who were forced to travel. How long did they travel? Remind me. Oh, months, months. Yeah. It depended. Different different groups took a different amount of time to get there. But 
and uh, Salva actually traveled twice. So the first time it was a couple of months, and the second time it was a year and a half. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Yeah. So they had they were refugees from a war, and they had to make their way to safety, which was usually a refugee camp. So that's one story, mm-hmm. and the other story is what Salva's doing now, which I decided to do by telling a second narrative about a girl whose life has changed by Salva's current work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I should have seen it coming, <laughs> but I didn't. And the way you wove those two stories together was just uh, just really masterfully done. So tell me, when you are writing about... So when you wrote that book, let's just, for example, do you have in mind, like, this is the message that I want to get out into the world? And then I guess with this one, it was, since it was based on a true story, it's probably different than with a single shard. But do you usually have an idea, like an overarching theme that you want to start with, and then you write a story to tell that theme? Or is it the other way around? Does the theme kind of emerge as you're writing? Well, I guess I definitely have things that I'm interested in exploring. Let me just put it that way. But I don't think about theme. (laughs) And so I think that if a book is really good, it will have a slightly different theme or maybe a radically different theme for every reader who reads it, depending on what they need to get from that book at the time. Mm. So for something like A Single Shard, I really clearly remember one teacher writing to me and saying, okay, we've come up with three possible themes and we want to know which one, you know, is the is the right one. <laughs> so one of them was perseverance, one of them was art, and one of them was family. You know, think about A Single Shard, right? I'm yeah. like, you're all right. Yeah. You're all right. 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 Right? What's the most important to you at the time that you read it? And if it's a really good book, You can read it at age 10, and then again at age 30, and again at age 50, and it's going to say something slightly different to you each time. That's so true. Yeah, absolutely. that's, that's to me, what defines really good literature, right? So for A Long Walk to Water, there was something that stunned me about Salva's story, besides all the amazing things that happened, and that is something I knew intellectually, but that I didn't fully grasped emotionally until I learned and got to know Salva, learned Salva's story and got to know him, which is that if you don't have water, you have nothing. Mm. There is nothing else you can do. Mm -hmm. Your entire life is about getting water. And this is no matter who you are or where you live or when you lived in history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I suppose air is a little more base, is maybe more basic, but you know, if you don't have water, you don't have food, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. so it's that basic a need. And so therefore, you know, you can't even talk about things like women's rights and education and disease unless you have water first. Right, right. So this hit me like a ton of bricks, even though it was something, again, that you say and you know on one level, right? Right. Um, so, I mean, uh, my husband and I had been, you know, thinking about where we wanted to do some, you know, we wanted some of our charitable dollars to go and, and our energy and so forth. And of course, I try to do some things related to you know, literature and especially children's books and children's reading and literacy. But when we met Salva, we were like, whoa, okay, you know, all of these troubled, troubled spots of the world, so much of it begins in a fight for resources. Yeah. In a struggle for, I mean, there are direct links between, for example, land, which can't be farmed because there's no water, and the rise of terrorism. You know, so there are these connections mm-hmm. that are, that are, were kind of mind-blowing. And so that's when we decided that we would really like to support Salva's work because there's just nothing more basic to human need than water. 
We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, And here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? (laughs) Fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And it's so insp- I love how the work of your book has actually made a tangible difference in how much how many people have access to water in Sudan. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about like the after effects of what <laughs> what's happened since you've right. helped raise awareness from well, this. That was also like a huge gift because what I was hoping that the book would do would be to, you know, let young readers know a little something about other parts of the world that seems so remote. Salva and I hope Nia are, I hope, very relatable characters. They have emotions like we do, you know, they have hopes and dreams like we do, and yet they live, their daily lives are so very different. And so this is all I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. Well, these young readers and their teachers, their school administrators, their librarians, they were so compelled by Salva and Nia's story that they began fundraising and donating money to Salva's organization, Water for South Sudan. And it's turned into wells and water for literally hundreds of thousands of people who never had it before. Mm. These uh, students and schools have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. In fact, they're nearing the $2 million mark that they've given, you know, with bake sales, with penny collections, with wishing wells in the, in the lobbies of their schools, you know, just, and it's, that was just astounding to me. I never anticipated that it would have, you know, that it would move them to that kind of action. So I hope that it's something that stays with these young readers. It may not stay with all of them, but I hope it stays with at least some of them. That idea that, you know, you learn a little bit, you explore a little bit, and then, you know, you can be part of changing the world in an incredibly significant way. Yeah. Uh, so tell me some of the other books that you've enjoyed that are like, like, a Long Walk to Water are world changer books, books that in- oh, inspire wow. us okay. to act. Yeah, Right. I gave a couple examples in my TED Talk. One of them is Crenshaw by 
Catherine Applegate. Oh, yes. That's on my nightstand. I haven't started it yet, but I love Catherine Applegate. Okay. Right. That's about being homeless here in the United States Mm -hmm. and has inspired schools and students to collect food for their local homeless shelters. A book that I think is incredibly important is All American Boys. Oh, you know, I just or I I think you mentioned that in your TED talk and I just ordered it this morning (laughs) based on your recommendation. Yeah, right. Jason Reynolds and Brendan Kiley. And that explores the question of race relations in this country, which is, of course, you know, incredibly important mm-hmm. and could literally be a life-saving book, mm. uh, depending on how uh, readers, both young and old, embrace it. So, and, you know, there are, if you have a particular part of the world, a particular cause, um, and I say this in the TED Talk too, a particular movement that you're interested in, there is probably a wonderful children's book mm. or novel that mm-hmm. will illuminate that in a very moving and heartfelt way. There are picture books for younger readers. There's a book called One Plastic Bag by Miranda Paul, which I really like. And it's about how a woman in Africa did amazing things with one plastic bag. (laughs) Um, Uh, Have you seen the book Boxes for Katya by Candace Fleming? Yes, I have. That's another another wonderful one. one. Yeah, yeah. So I actually have come around to this pretty slowly because, you know, originally I... I still believe that one of literature's primary missions is to change the individual, not the world. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. This was a surprise to me that it would have this kind of activism component. And then I was like, well, that's a good thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're right. (laughs) Yeah. So, and, you know, my local community, Rochester, New York, has a wonderful, a couple of wonderful children's book festivals. We're really lucky. We have the Rochester Children's Book Festival every November, and we have the Teen Book Festival in April, and both of them are terrific events. But this year, the Rochester Children's Book Festival is having its 20th anniversary, a wonderful and amazing event, and they have decided to commemorate A Long Walk to Water with this year's festival. Oh, wow. The the theme is Books Change Readers, Readers Change the World. I love love that. Yes, I love that. Yeah, I love that at the end of your TED Talk, too, when you say it's not that children's books that change the world. It's the people who read them. That's right. Yeah. You also had another quote in your talk where you said, in order to find yourself in a book, you first have to lose yourself in a book. So tell me the kinds of books that you lost yourself in when you were a child. Oh, I was such a reader. I was such a reader that there was, I was pretty indiscriminate. You know, I read uh, what would, you know, the Nancy Drew Mystery series and all the mass produced young people's fiction of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I read, you know, the more critically lauded and reviewed books like the Newbery List and, and so forth. And so I was pretty, you know, just a, just such a reader that there was just almost no book I met that I really didn't like. <laughs> but I do have incredible admiration then and now for the writers who are, you know, the feeling that I mean, that you begin reading a book and, you know, an hour goes by when you think it's five minutes. Or that you just, oh, just one more, just one more chapter, mm-hmm. just one more chapter. And then mm-hmm. you just, you just don't want to come out of that story world. And so I don't know if I'm always successful, but that is what I am trying to create in my own books. That feeling that you just, you just don't want to do anything else. You yeah. just want to finish this book. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Th- and at the same time, you don't want it to end. So. <laughs> yeah. That's like the mark of a good book, right? Right. <laughs> I know a really good book was the one that I'm enjoying so much just along with my kids. I enjoy it as much as they do. So I don't want to end. You know, I think one more chapter. It's usually them saying one more chapter, but I know we've hit a good one when I'm saying, okay, one more chapter. (laughs) I do need to update this because it's been a while since I've been there. But on my website, there is a page called Reading. And I, it has several lists of my favorites. Oh, but perfect. I probably, yeah, I probably did that in, you know, maybe more than 10 years ago. So since then, there have been, of course, 
many, many wonderful books published that are not on there. So yes. I oh, I see it. Perfect. Yeah. I'll make sure I link to this on our show notes. I see some of my favorites right away, like right. Edward Eager's Half Magic and All of right. the Kind Family by Sydney Taylor. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, fun. Okay, yes. I will make, I will rain makes applesauce. Yeah, we're going to have a blast with this list. So I will make sure I link to this on our show notes as well so people can go peek at it. We have a lot of young aspiring writers in our Read Aloud Revival community. And I am sure they would love to hear from you on like what you would suggest for them as they're trying to grow into their writing. Right. Well, first of all, it's of course, read a lot. <laughs> Reading is training for writers. You know, people ask, you know, how do you write wonderful stories or how do you write good sentences? Or, and I'm like, it's because I've read one million of them. You know, so that's, that's the material, that's the raw material mm-hmm. that I have to work with. And if mm-hmm. you don't read a lot, you don't have that raw material. Yeah. So the reading a lot is the first. And then the second thing, I think young readers should aim short. I have a, often have young readers who tell me that they're working on a novel and they often begin with great enthusiasm and then never finish. And, and that's not a good feeling, yeah. you know, to lose interest in it. So I'm huge on poetry. You know, people can finish poems, young or old. They don't have to be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and just trying shorter forms, a story, a paragraph or two, a letter, poems. And to try, when you're young, to try all different kinds of writing. If you think that you don't like, you know, fantasy, you know, write a fantasy story, a short one, or a poem about a unicorn or something. If you think you don't like historical fiction, pick one area of history that really does interest you a little bit and just write a little sketch that takes place then. You know, just keep trying different things, keep dabbling, because you don't know where your strength is sometimes until you try different things. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah, yeah. One, depending on the age of the young writer, of course, one thing that my daughter very much enjoyed, which I, which I had not done as a child, my big thing was poetry. I wrote millions of really bad poems all the way through my childhood. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's so um, nice for us all to hear because your writing yes. is so gorgeous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter and her good friend in about, I was going to say fourth or fifth grade, they started a swap journal. They're just one of those regular notebooks and my daughter would write something in it, a story, a poem, or a letter, and then she would give it to her friend Alana, and Alana would write in it either something new or responding to what Anna had said. There were no rules. You didn't have to do. The only rule was that you had to give it back in three days ah. with something written in it. And they kept that up for a year and a half. Really? Because you have an audience. Yeah. You have somebody you know is going to read what you are doing, and and then you ha- and so and they were just. That it really became a thing, you know. You've got to give it back to me tomorrow. Don't forget. Oh yeah, I will, you know. And they helped each other both become better writers. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's and no good. grades, you know, nothing. Yeah, nothing. No judgment, just except you know, oh, I like that or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. But you knew somebody would be would, would be reading what you wrote. So I often give that swap journal idea to young people who want to write. Yeah, that's a great idea. Now your books take a lot of research because they're taking place in certain parts of the world or certain things that happened in history. What does the research stage of writing look like for you? Oh, I have to be disciplined about it because research is reading. I love to read, remember? <laughs> so I could just research forever. <laughs> and, and, you know, it has to come to the point where I'm just say, okay, I will never know everything there is to know about this subject. Yeah, yeah. So it's time to start writing. I do try to do much of my research. I'm going to put an arbitrary figure of about 80% before I start. And as I'm writing, I sometimes have to stop and say, oh, I actually don't know this. I need to look it up. Okay. You know, but I prefer to have a lot of it done. I read, I take notes. I try to keep the 
I do tend to buy a lot of the books that I research with because I need to keep them. You know, there comes a point where the overdue fines equal the cost of the book. That's so where I I'm just, at most of the time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm so like, I you know, just, it's it's very supportive. I'm sure the library loves me. Right. Actually. <laughs> right. So if, if I've checked it out three times or four, I mean, if I've renewed it three or four times and I'm not allowed to anymore, then I do tend to buy it. It means it's a useful book to me. Yeah. And yeah. so then, then I'm able to stick post-its in so that most of my research books bristle with post-its. And then, you know, eventually I, yeah, but I do have to say, you know, it's a rabbit hole. You could go down it and, and never come out again because it's so fun, the stuff yeah. that you learn. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes I, if, um, depending on how this particular story idea has come to be, I might have a deadline that is a big encourager on stopping research and starting writing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A big, yeah. yeah, exactly. A finite amount of time. Let's talk about that, actually. What are you writing now? Or can you talk about what you're writing now? Sure. I have a few things going on. I am actually working on um, book three of the Wing and Claw trilogy. Book one, Forest of Wonders, came out last year. Mm -hmm. Book two, Cavern of Secrets, is due out in February. And so that means that right now I'm working on book three, the last book of the trilogy, which will be out in February or March of 2018. Okay, so I haven't Um, read any of these yet. So give us a little taste of what these are about. So this is a young boy named Rafa who is a member of an apothecary family. So it's set in a pre-technology fantasy world. And apothecaries take things like roots and leaves and berries and try to make medicines to help cure and heal people. So this is something that very much appealed to me because it's a fantasy world. It's kind of a real mashup ethnically. And every culture in the world throughout history has used apothecary. Mm. So that appealed to me for that reason. And Rafa loves to experiment. He wants to make something new, something that people have never used before. His father is a very skilled apothecary, and he's chafing at his father because his father insists that Rafa learn the basics. And Rafa is tired of the basics. He's tired of the same old, same old. He wants to make something new. And he accidentally stumbles on a formula that enables animals to talk. Oh, So this sounds awesome, of course, Uh and it's very exciting. And it turns out, of course, it's a, it's a very common fantasy trope, talking animals. And I wanted to, you know, give it a little bit of a twist or explore it in ways that are less common. So there are terrible ramifications to animals Mm. talking in this book. Um, Interesting. Yes, right. (laughs) So that's, you know, one, one thing I wanted to explore just to give it my own Sort of yeah. Really now, has it been a hard yeah. thing to write a trilogy? Because I don't think any of your other books have sequels, right? Is Correct. Right? Okay. Right. So, is that, right. how has that experience been different? Uh, it has been different. It has <laughs> been different. <laughs> um, I just right now on Twitter, what I decided to do to help motivate myself was to tweet my daily progress oh, on writing. Oh, very yes. good. So, okay. Yes. So I have a certain word count I need to make in order to make my deadline. And so I'm trying to keep up with that. But I'm also occasionally, so it's mostly just a word can. Oh, today I did 500, today I did, you know, whatever. But occasionally I will insert something about the actual process. So last week, one of the tweets was, oh, I just realized that the 600 words I wrote yesterday are inconsistent with what happens in book two. <laughs> so I have to go back and rewrite that scene. Mm. And so, so there definitely have been. But I had a little bit of experience with that in a different way in writing the 39 Clues series. I wrote only one book of that series, but that was 10 books, each written by a different author. So I had to make my book consistent with the others in the series. 
Yeah. So, yes. So this um, is fun. Was- I haven't been on your Twitter feed, but I'm looking at it now, and I'm going to follow you. This is fun. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Watching your progress and your um. Right, and I, I yeah. storify the tweets once a week. So if you if you don't you know if you don't want to, you can just go to the storify chain once a week rather oh, than cool. um, every day. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that has been a different experience. But I have a wonderful editor for Thirty Nine Clues. It was Rachel Griffiths at Scholastic, and for the Wing and Claw trilogy, it's Abby Ranger at Harper Collins, and they do a great deal of work to help me, you know, stay on track and and keep the the plot threads and the characters consistent. Very cool. But yeah, I can imagine that would be a challenge that you have not had to experience before since you get to write one right. book at a time usually. Right. <laughs> and then Yak's Yak. Now, is this your pr- first picture book? Oh, no, no. Oh, it's um, not. I actually have as many picture books as I do novels. You do? The novels How do I not are so much this? better known, wow. right? Wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's also on my website. If you go, you can uh, mouse over books and you'll see a page for picture books and a page for novels. And so the, my very first picture oh, yeah. grew out of, yes, that. grew out of my Korean historical fiction. So the Firekeeper's Son was my very first. And since then I've had many others, which are mostly out of my love of poetry because I read and wrote poetry for so many years. And good picture book text is, has so much in common with poetry. And some of them are in fact in verse. But Yak's Yak is a wordplay book, which is another of my particular interests. And uh, it's just animals that are also verbs. Yeah. So the manuscript itself was something like 35 words. And it is really Jennifer Black Reinhardt's illustrations that have really, you know, kicked it up a notch, as Emma would say. They've taken it to another level. And they're just so fun. And there's so many fun details. And, you know, teachers, I hope, will discover it and parents too for its, you know, potential to, uh, stimulate conversation about language and about vocabulary. Yeah, I love that. I had some conversations recently at our Read Aloud Revival Author Access events with Mary Casanova and Candace Fleming and Jonathan Bean. And they all were talking about how the illustrator really deepens the narrative because they come, it's like, the, it's like a whole nother layer on the story. I just was so interested because before I talked to any picture book authors, I thought that the author and illustrator collaborated and like worked right. together. I did not realize they're basically two separate forces that get woven yeah. together and kind of makes it better than it could be. Exactly. Let- I am not one of those authors who is interested in interfering or instructing my illustrators. I love being surprised by what they do. I love leaving them as free as possible to do their own thing because I am not an illustrator. I don't have a visual a good visual sense, and I really want them to just be free to do their thing. I have a couple of other projects in the works that I'm really excited about. Yeah. I have another picture book coming out. It won't be till 2019, so okay. it's a long time yet, but it's called Gondra's Treasure, G-O-N-D-R-A, and it's about a little girl dragon. Mm. Both Western and Eastern mythology have dragons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're quite, they're quite different. In the West, dragons have wings and breathe fire and live in caves and hoard treasure. And in the east, they don't have wings. They live in lakes or rivers or in the clouds, and they breathe mist. Interesting, um, yeah. So this is Gondra, whose father is a dragon from the east, and her mother is a dragon from the west. She breathes fire out of one nostril and mist out of the other. So it's basically a, a little girl from a mixed-race family who's both sides have, you know, have different strengths. And it also introduces the, you know, the fascinating to me concept that, you know, two completely different sides of the world both have dragons, yeah. um, but they evolved in, into very different mythological creatures. So, so interesting. Do you know who's going to be illustrating that book? That's Jennifer Black Reinhardt again. And then the other project is completely uh, a complete change. 
And that actually, it was when you said Candace Fleming that reminded me of it because it was her idea. And she had this incredible idea for a YA novel, a young adult or a teen novel. It's going to be one male author and six female authors. Uh The male author, each of us will write a chapter of the book from a different point of view. The male author is going to write Henry VIII and each of us is one of the six wives. Oh my goodness. (laughs) You know what? That does not surprise me that Candace came up with that. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So um, I ended up, I I wrote, uh, I'm working on writing wife number five, Catherine Howard. And I was actually thrilled to get her because I knew relatively, I mean, Anne Boleyn is the famous one, right? But I, I knew relatively about little about Catherine Howard and she was actually the only teenager. So I got to write the only young person in oh, this wow. um, whole scenario. Yeah. yeah. But, but who else was, is, um, can you tell us who else is working on that yeah, project? Yes, let's see. Um, Candace is going to do Catherine of Aragon, wife okay. number one. She'll set up the whole thing for us. Mm-hmm. Henry is M.T. Anderson, who is just one of our greatest writers of historical fiction. He's going to be amazing. Awesome. Um, let's see. Um, who else? Deborah Hopkinson. Okay. Is writing one of the wives. Jennifer Donnelly, Lisa Sandell, Stephanie Perkins, and I think that's all of them. Fantastic. That sounds, yeah. that'll be, and when does that one come out? Do you know? I don't, I'm not sure yet if there's a publication date. I think the original date, they were trying for fall 2017, but I think that's not going to happen now. It's probably going to be spring 2018. Okay. Okay. Very good. Oh, oh this and, is so interesting. Sorry. Yeah. The working title for that is Fatal Throne. Fatal Throne. Yeah. Okay. Not, okay. not a good, not not a great thing to be a wife of Henry. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, so good. Well, we'll make sure that we link to your books page on your website so everybody can find all of your novels and your picture books. And we'll be definitely keeping an eye out for whatever you come out with next because your work is changing readers and they're changing the world. And that is such a beautiful thing to witness. So I appreciate you coming on the show to talk to me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. What's your name? Isaac. How old are you? Me. And what's your favorite book? Banana. And what's your favorite part? When you sit on the bubble. My name is Levi. Five years old, my book is Million Blaze. And what's your favorite part? When they find dog trapped in the forest. My name is Caleb. My, I'm nine years old and I live in Ontario, Canada. My favorite read aloud is Captain Nobody by Dean Pitchford. My favorite character is Cecil because he's always calling small things big emergencies. My name is Maya and I'm seven years old. I live in Ontario, Canada. My favorite book is Little House in the Big Woods. My favorite part is when they're at the Christmas party and they get snow on their plates and grandma pours boiling hot maple syrup on top to make candy. What's your name? Olivia Bach. And how old are you? Four. Where do you live? Rodden, Louisiana. And what's your favorite book? Fancy Nancy. Why do you like Fancy Nancy? Because her usually has a fussy rolls. Yes, yeah, she does. Good job. 
My name is Penny, and I live in California. And I'm five years old. And my favorite book is The Princess and the Kiss because it's beautiful, and I like princesses. Hi, my name is Gray. I like the garden in the city. I'm four years old, and I live in North Virginia. The garden in the city is about them moving to a new house in the in the middle of the city. We made a beautiful garden. <laughs> what What do you like about the book? What are your favorite parts? Go ahead. <laughs> It's just funny. I know, it is funny. Okay, what are your favorite parts? The snow and the apple tree and the bananas and the bonfire. Goodbye. I'm four years old. My name is Aspen. And I live in Washington State. And my favorite book is Seven Silver Ears. And my favorite part is when they make a cake. Yeah. Why do you like that book? Because it's funny. My name is Emily. How old are you? Two and a half. And where do you live? In Washington. And what's your favorite book? Um, which is Carrie's um, best word book ever. Why do you like it? Because it's so great. What's your favorite book? Cars and trucks and things that go. I like what the pages said. My favorite part is inside inside the book is my part. My name is Scrap and I'm Jurassic. And what's your favorite book? Cats for sale. And what does he say? Cats, cats for sale, bitches, that's a guy. Kids, you are awesome. Thank you so much for those fantastic messages. That was spectacular. Hey, if your kids want to leave a message to be featured on the Read Aloud Revival, let the kids speak portion. Love it if they did that. Go to readaloudrevival.com and scroll to the bottom of the page. It's really easy to leave a message. What happens is we send you an email about a month or so before your child's message airs so you know which podcast episode to expect to hear your child on. And we air every single message we receive in the order we received it. So... You don't have to worry about your child leaving a message and being disappointed. They will be featured if they've left a message. There's no question about that. We love hearing their book choices. That's so much fun. And this one, this set of messages had me giggling. So (laughs) totally a bright spot in my day. Don't forget to visit and check out Membership Before Doors Close this month so that you don't miss out on that. We've got so much good stuff happening. Our next year's calendar is up and you can find out what we've got in the works at the Read Aloud Revival for a whole nother year. Head to readaloudrevival.com. Get on the email list so you don't miss out on all this good stuff and so that we can keep in touch with you. We are so, so grateful to have you as part of our community. Until next time, go build your family culture around books. 